Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you and walk through the Word Diet. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that position, so get them together and work your way through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the book of Galatians, the book on the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law and our struggles with legalism. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now, we're coming to the end of Galatians chapters 1 and 2. Paul has been asserting his apostleship and beginning to defend the gospel, including a long autobiographical section with a doctrinal conclusion that we have not yet covered. And that's verses 20 and 21. I'm going to start off by reading chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I like Matthew Henry's characterization of this passage. He says, first, Paul has been crucified, yet he lives. So this points to the old man, new man. He's freed from the sin nature and the world. Topics that he'll come back to in chapter 5, verse 24, and chapter 6, verse 14. And he's free to live. The greatest exposition of that idea is in Romans 6, 6 through 13. Second, he lives, yet not him, but Christ in him, yielding the throne to Christ. Cynthia Held said, from that time on, I began to understand that the Christian life is not imitation, but habitation. And then third, he lives in the body, yet lives by faith. And this alludes to the wrestling between flesh and spirit, again, that Paul talks about in such detail in the book of Romans. Let's talk about some of the phrases in here. It starts with crucified with Christ. Literally, the phrase is co-crucified. And that's quite a phrase to think about, that we're crucified with Christ, co-crucified with him. We voluntarily share in his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. Of course, baptism is a picture of this as well. And this is both from a legal standpoint. We're no longer condemned and guilty because we're dead. And thus, we're reconciled in innocent and legal terms. But second, it's relational, that experientially we've enjoyed something that is life-changing. As Eugene Peterson notes, we've ended one way of life and opened up another, but crucifixion is a slow, painful sort of death, and it's the daily process that Jesus refers to in Luke 9, verses 23 and 24, to take up one's cross daily. If the top picture of justification is the blood of Jesus, then the top picture of sanctification is the body of Jesus, being crucified with Christ. I like how Watchman Nee puts it when he says Jesus died for our sin, but he's also interested in knocking out what Nee calls our sin factory, the thing that produces the sins. And that's what Paul's talking about here as well, the process of sanctification and the process by which we produce fewer sins within our bodies. Verse 20 continues with that theme, the life I live in the body, I live by dot, dot, dot. And what would you put in that sentence if it were you? Would you put obedience and self-effort, experience and emotion, 
the life I live in the body, I live by relationships or rules, traditions, knowledge, discipline, activity, analysis. Instead, it's by faith in the Son of God. Christ and the Spirit are huge here. Colossians 1.27, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not just that Christ's blood covers our sin, it's that Christ in us, the Holy Spirit in us, empowers us to live the sort of life that God wants us to live. Now that faith in the Son of God is bolstered by the last phrase in verse 20, who loved me and gave himself for me. The me here is very personal, individual, and this is very useful for empowerment. I can give myself to the influence of one, the control of one, who loves me and gave himself up for me. Hannah Whitehall Smith says, You have trusted him as your dying Savior. Now trust him as your living Savior. Just as much as he came to deliver you from future punishment, did he also come to deliver you from personal bondage? In Romans 6, 1 and 15, Paul questions deliberate disobedience. In Romans 7, 14 through 24, he wrestles with what obedience looks like and the reality of being a new creature in Christ, yet still I find myself engaging in sin. And what's the solution that Paul finds at the end of the famous Romans 7? Who, not what, will deliver me? It's not a what, it's a who. The key to the Christian life is always a who. The Jesus who died for my sins, the Jesus and the Spirit who live in me to live the sort of life that God wants from me. All right, Galatians 2 verse 21 to wrap up this chapter. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The first phrase is interesting, I do not set aside the grace of God, perhaps alluding to what we talked about in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, that Peter and his friends had done that when they stumbled earlier in chapter 2. Later in verse 21, we have some important logic. If the law could do all that, then Christ died for nothing. As Paul would write about it in Romans eleven six. and if by grace, then it cannot be by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. If it could be done by our attainment, then there would be no need for his atonement. In God's plan, Christ's atoning death would both be unnecessary, ridiculous, painful, and so on. The NIV Study Bible says to mingle legalism with grace distorts grace and makes a mockery of the cross. John Stott says, yet there are large numbers of people who, like the Judaizers, are making these very mistakes. They're seeking to commend themselves to God by their own works. They think it is noble to try to win their way to God and to heaven, but it is not noble. It is dreadfully ignoble, for in effect, it is to deny both the nature of God and the mission of Christ. It is to refuse to let God be gracious. It is to tell Christ that he need not have bothered to die. And what does this mean for the sort of life that will result? I like what Eugene Peterson says here, if we will live freely, we will live receptively and gratefully. Personal explorations of grace develop freedom in relation to all persons and things. Where all is gift, I do not own things or persons and thus don't have to protect them. Therefore, I don't have to be anxious. In a world of grace, I do not live in laborious struggle, trying to fashion a world that suits my needs and desires, hammering together a life out of the bits and pieces of scrap lumber that come my way. I do not live in anxious suspicion, nervous about what others might do to me, what others might think of me. I simply discover and receive. And that's the freedom that Paul is talking about. Okay, let's start into Galatians 3, and now we move into a two-chapter sequence, chapters 3 and 4, where he will focus on doctrine. He'll start with experience, interestingly, chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, both theirs and his earlier experiences, also scripture and then reason. And it's interesting that he talks about all three, 
And it's interesting in the order that he chooses them, experience, scripture, and reason. Experience can be quite useful, and given their recent and relatively dramatic conversion, it would be useful in this case, but of course it has to also be grounded in scripture and in logic as well. Chapter 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, this is a rough opening to this section. John MacArthur says it's anger and love mixed with amazement. In terms of style, it's direct and severe, just like we saw in the introduction. It's not exactly people-pleasing. Remember, he defended himself against that accusation back in chapter 1, verse 10. But it is justified following the heretical implications of their view. And remember the end of chapter 2, if righteousness could be gained from the law, then Christ died for nothing. What's worse than that? The substance of it in verse 1 and again in verse 3 will be the word foolish, which means poor judgment or discernment that they're simply not thinking. It does imply capacity. He'll use the word again in 1 Timothy 6.9 and Titus 3.3, and it's reminiscent of Jesus in Matthew 5.22, but it's done out of love rather than the hate that Jesus is describing there. In fact, Jesus uses a similar phrase on the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24, verse 25, he uses the phrase, how foolish you are. Same idea. Now, note that Paul doesn't say that they were lazy or undisciplined. In fact, they were probably working quite hard. That's what legalists tend to do. But going the right direction is the first priority. Zeal is wonderful, but it needs to be grounded in knowledge. Now, one of the great things about legalists is that you never know how tough something is until you try it. And so legalists always run into that barrier if they're being honest with themselves. Or thinking of it this way, God can't work with apathy. Think of Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of soup, but he can work with those who want the blessings, even if they pursue them the wrong way, as Jacob did. I like what Eugene Peterson says about thinking. Thinking for the Christian has never been either primary or final, neither the first matter nor the last. The life of faith includes far more than can be comprehended or analyzed by mere mind. But all the same, the mind is a marvelous gift and has important and essential functions in the life of faith. Paul demands that they think about their position. So he opens by blaming them, but then he switches gears. The next phrase is, who has bewitched you? The word who indicates a singular influence, could be demonic influence, but probably pointing at the Judaizers. And the word bewitched here is interesting. It means to charm, fascinate, allure, please to such a degree as to take away the power of resistance. And it's interesting that one could be under another's control, certainly other people. We've seen that accusation earlier in Galatians. And here the emphasis seems to be on the allure of the law. It seems strange to be bewitched by the law, but it does have some appeal, especially to some sorts of people. They like the rules. They like the boxes. They like the flesh and the pride that goes with it. They enjoy making favorable comparisons to others who are less than them. So it certainly does have some appeal and can be bewitching. The last phrase, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. The phrase eyes and clearly portrayed are in contrast to the foolish and bewitched of earlier in the verse. The latter phrase is literally used to write for public reading it's something that's posted and proclaimed. Thus, they were forgetting who Christ was and what he did. Or they were trivializing it next to their own claims about their own rituals and practices. And so Paul is indicating here how important it is for us to keep in mind the crucifixion of Christ, why Christ did what he did. 
David Brainerd says, I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. When my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed a sure and inevitable fruit of the other. I find they begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified even in small matters when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and him crucified. In contrast to Brainerd's quote, we're often trying to get people to change their garments coercively, but instead Brainerd's saying if you will just focus on the crucifixion of Christ, they will change into the garments of holiness naturally. What did Paul preach? That verb is used for him 23 times. He preached the gospel 14 times, Christ five times, then one time each, Christ crucified, grace, the word, and preached on sanctification. He didn't preach morality. He didn't preach the law. He preached the gospel, Christ, Christ crucified, and so on. It's what is right with Christ that will compel us to follow, not what is wrong with the world or how we can change our behavior. We focus on Christ and the rest follows. All right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered chapter 2, verse 20, through chapter 3, verse 1 of Galatians. Right now, we're going to extend that and go back and read verse 1 and read through verse 5. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by human effort? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by your... your, Does God... Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by your observing the law or by your believing what you heard? So early in verse 2, he says, I want to know just one thing. And then he expresses that in four additional provocative rhetorical questions. And a fifth, are you so foolish for flavor? First thing to note here is in verse 2 that the Holy Spirit makes his debut in the book of Galatians three times in this passage and a total of 18 times in the book of Galatians. Colson and Dean say being transformed by the Spirit is what it really means to be a Christian. Soren Kierkegaard says such self-knowledge we are referring to is really not complicated, but is not one able then to overcome oneself by oneself? How can I be stronger than myself? When we speak of overcoming oneself by oneself, we really mean something external so that the struggle is unequal. And that other force is the Holy Spirit, Oddly, not outside of us, but something external to us, living inside of us, again, the Holy Spirit. Now let us wrestle with the question of verse 4, that they had suffered so much for nothing. First, it gives context to Paul calling them foolish in verses 1 and 3, that it's not in the sense of being silly. Apparently, they had suffered persecution then, or at least early on. Again, foolish was, use your heads, let's think about this. The other idea here is that it can be translated as experienced, which may fit the rest of the passage better. In other words, haven't your experiences taught you anything? Now back to verse 2, one of the bigger questions in the passage is that you had already received the Spirit, but how? Well, through grace. Judaizers thought Christ was okay, but also thought that they needed to go back to the roots and observe the law as well. But did you earn grace by observing the law? Did you earn the Spirit by observing the law? Well, of course not. You got it through believing. Faith and belief are used seven times in chapter 3, verses 2 through 9. 
Now here, Paul doesn't mean faith and belief as in mere mental assent, but in contrast to trying to attain salvation by, again, the phrase used here, observing the law, which doesn't make any sense. They'd already received the Spirit, thus they were believers. We know this from Romans 8 9, or the reference by Paul in Ephesians 1.13 to the Holy Spirit as a seal or a deposit. You don't have to speak in tongues to get the Spirit. You don't have to earn the Spirit. It's given to you by God's grace, just like salvation is. Now, in verse 3, the phrase is attain your goal or trying to finish, and here he's clearly talking about sanctification. So, verse 2 is on justification, but that leads to the questions that he asks in verses 3 through 5 on sanctification. And, again, sanctification is also by the Spirit, also God's gift. There's some great verses in the scriptures about justification and sanctification being by Christ, that our sanctification, our walk with Christ, is through God's provision and our participation. We just finished one of those classic passages in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's through God's provision, but it's also through our participation in that provision. Other great verses here, 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. 1 Peter 4.10, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Philippians 2.12 and 13, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. And Colossians 1, 29, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. It's always God's provision and our participation. In contrast, we have purely human effort that he refers to, and literally it's the flesh. The Greek word here is sarx. We often refer to the ugly and carnal sides of the flesh, but here we're talking about the respectable, the all-too-respectable religious aspects of human effort and the flesh. Think of Christ with the appealing tree in Mark 11, verses 12 through 14. It had great leaves, but no fruit. The distinction here is in working for God versus God working through you. It's a matter of availability, not ability. It's a matter of dependency on God. Bible study, prayer, disciplines are tools. They're not ends to themselves. They're the means by which we can draw closer to God so that he can work through us. They are not the means by which we impress God or earn his favor. Faith requires risk and dependence And that is only through the life of faith and grace that God has laid out through the Spirit. G. Campbell Morgan says, Is it so that any activity of the flesh whatever can strengthen the life of the Spirit? It is inconceivable. And yet here is the place where repeatedly the children of God have been carried away. All sorts of fleshly devices have been resorted to in the vain and foolish hope that activity of the flesh tends to the strengthening of the Spirit. It is ever so. The process is exactly opposite. The Spirit controls the flesh, employs it, commands it, sanctifies it, and thus makes it the instrument of service to others. Therefore, the process of the soul to perfection is ever by faith, a spiritual activity, and never by works, a fleshly method. 
Later, we'll see this in Galatians 5.16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We usually get that exactly backwards. We think that we don't live by gratifying the desires of the sinful nature, and then we will walk by the Spirit. And Paul will say later, it's exactly the opposite. And the matter is the same here, early in chapter 3. So all of this points to our need to emphasize the Holy Spirit in our churches, and we just don't do that enough. A.W. Tozer's book, Divine Conquest, is great on this. Ian Thomas, The Saving Life of Christ, Watchman Nee, The Normal Christian Life. There's a lot of great resources on this, but we need to get away from our sense of self-sufficiency. And we understand it in light of Christ's death on the cross and salvation, that we can't earn that. But often we try to, to miss this in terms of the Spirit's empowering. We think we can do it on our own. Remember John 15, 5, you can do nothing by yourself. Or think about Paul's frustration in Romans 7. Verse 15, he says, I do not understand what I do, for I want to do, I do not do it, but what I hate, I do. And Paul continues to wrestle with that in Romans 7. And then how does it finish? Verse 22, for in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then where does chapter 8 go? To the Holy Spirit for a whole chapter. So it's the Spirit. It's Christ. He's the who of verse 25 that delivers me from the dilemma of Romans 7. Now in verse 5, the question is the same as in verse 2 with two exceptions. First, there's an emphasis here on God giving versus us receiving the Spirit. And then second, Paul adds a reference to miracles, which are either ignored or overemphasized today. Apparently, there had been strong external manifestations of the Spirit, which had gotten the Galatians' attention. Or it's possible that responding to the newness of the Judaizers' teaching, Paul is reminding them of the miracles that God had done. And the translation can be here either among you or within you, again, pointing to the Holy Spirit. The bottom line here, John Stott picks up as the law says do this, the gospel says Christ has done it all. The law requires works of human achievement, the gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. The law makes demands and bids us obey, the gospel brings promises and bids us believe. A few last thoughts on this passage. None of these troubles would have happened if we keep in mind verse 1, Christ crucified before their eyes. That's the key to their problems here. And then the experiential reality of verses 2 through 5. Verse 2, they had received. Verse 4, they had suffered or experienced. Verse 5, miracles. And where we're going to go in verses 6 through 9 is the biblical reality and the teaching from the Old Testament. It's interesting that experience matters and goes first here, but it is not determinate. It is only supplemental. The feelings they had initially had faded here, and that underlines why experience matters, but why experience ultimately cannot be what we build our foundation on. And we can make two mistakes here. We can imagine that our experiences are so great that they mean everything, or we can imagine that experience means nothing. And the combination is that experience does matter. We live in incarnate life and history and context, and the life we live does matter to the faith that we have. The Life Application Bible says the Holy Spirit gives Christians great power to live for God. Some Christians want more than this. They want to live in a state of perpetual excitement. The tedium of everyday living leads them to conclude that something is wrong spiritually. 
Often the Holy Spirit's greatest work is teaching us to persist, to keep on doing what is right, even when it no longer seems interesting or exciting. If the Christian life seems ordinary, you may need the Spirit to stir you up or to take risks. Every day offers a challenge to live for Christ. Lord, help us to walk in the Spirit. Help us to look at the experiences we've had, the valid experiences we've had walking with you. Lord, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your grace through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet. In the last segment, we got through Galatians 3.5, and the opening of chapter 3 is a series of rough rhetorical questions. And now starting in verse 6 of chapter 3, Paul sets about proving the doctrine he had just rebuked them about. He switches here to the preferred ground of the Judaizers, Old Testament law, to argue with them. And in particular, he's going to use Abraham. He's going to talk about the belief and saving faith of Abraham in verse 6 and 7. And then verses 8 and 9, the blessing of Abraham in Genesis 12 to be a blessing to all nations, including the Gentiles in particular, which was of greatest interest to Paul. And so if you think about the institution of circumcision, you think about the blessing that Abraham received, all of this precedes circumcision and the law. MacArthur observes that Abraham was justified by faith years before circumcision and centuries before the giving of the law. And so you can see where the argument is going here, right? That the law can't be everything if Abraham was blessed. Circumcision can't be everything if Abraham was justified by faith. And then I think we can also note that legalism is rarely a blessing, and Abraham is built to be blessed and to bless others through that. Now, the Judaizers had been abusing tradition, and we saw the same thing in the ministry of Jesus when he dealt with the status quo and the Pharisees in particular. But here, Paul uses Abraham to make his point. He goes back in history, refers to Jewish tradition in order to make the points he's going to make. And Abraham will be a central figure throughout this argument in Galatians 3 and 4. Now, this Old Testament focus is appropriate to combat the Judaizers. They were saying one must go back to the law and to Moses, and Paul says, you know what? I agree with you. So let's go all the way back. Let's go to Abraham. Here's what David Garland says about this. For most Christians influenced by the New Testament, Abraham evokes the model of trusting faith in God. This image comes almost entirely from Paul and was not the perception of the average Jew in the street of the first century. In Stephen's speech, and that's in Acts 7, which Garland describes as a synopsis of the highlights of Israel's history. Abraham is associated with the promise of an inheritance to his posterity, this covenant of circumcision, and being the father of the Jews, but the matter of his faith is not mentioned. In rabbinic Judaism, Abraham is portrayed as the first proselyte, the first convert from heathen ways, and as the example of perfect obedience to the commands of God. He kept the whole law before it was written. To them, this underscores Abraham's faithfulness not his faith. And so it's up to Paul to elevate his faith in a way that we just take for granted now through books like Romans and Galatians. But Abraham is obviously a great example for Paul in general and in particular dealing with the Judaizers. He was obedient to the point of circumcision at the age of 99, but he was still justified by faith. Garland again says, what was important happened first in Genesis 12 and 15, long before the circumcision recorded in Genesis 17. Rather than being the model proselyte who accepts circumcision, Abraham is the model of the sinner who receives justification by faith without having done anything whatsoever to earn it.
So let's read Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So verse 6 provides Abraham as the example, providing a positive angle on faith and quoting Genesis 15, 6. And his belief led to complete righteousness at a point in time. In other words, what we would call salvation. So he is righteous, and that's not because of anything he did, but that his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Again, the free gift is given before the law and before circumcision. Paul talks about this to great effect in Romans 4, particularly verses 9 through 12. Despite the improbability of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, 5, Abraham believed, and that's what is credited to him as righteousness. And in a way, this is very much like the gospel. The gospel for us is often considered to be too easy or too good to be true, and that's just the sort of thing that Abraham believed about God as well. John Stott says he was not justified because he had done anything to deserve it, or because he had been circumcised, or because he had kept the law, for neither circumcision or the law had yet been given, but simply because he believed God. And notice that it says believed God rather than believed in God. Even the demons believe, we're told in James 2.19. So that's not sufficient. We're not talking about some kind of mental assent here. We're talking about trusting, believing, having faith in God to do what he says he'll do. In verse 7, we have those identified who believe as Abraham's children. That's a spiritual reference. He'll build on that late in chapter 4. And again, turning to Abraham to blunt the Judaizers' argument that the real children of Abraham, they claim to be that. Remember John 8, 31 through 44, where Jesus dealt with the Pharisees here, or Romans 4, 16 through 22, where Paul uses this argument, who are the real children of Abraham? And Paul's arguing, hey, it's by faith. It's not by law, circumcision, or works. Or think about it this way. How fair would that be that only the biological children of Abraham would get in? There's no choice about your biological father. But you do have choice about belief in God. And so the way of God is not due to lineage or works. It's due to grace. For us as well, verse 9, we are children of Abraham by faith. Verse 8 says the scripture foresaw this as a divine personification of God's word. And verse 8 continues on with all nations will be blessed through you. Quoting Genesis 12, 3, 18, 18, and 22, 18 explaining part of God's promise to Abraham to be a blessing to all people, ultimately through Christ, including the Gentiles in the reference there in verse 8, which literally means heathen. Colson and Dean put this passage in these terms. Since Abraham was justified by faith, not works, the true children of Abraham are justified by faith, not works. Abraham was not primarily the father of the circumcised. He was the father of the faithful, that is, of those who exercise faith in the promises of God. So now Paul turns from positive words about faith to negative words against the law, and that's in verses 10 through 14. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, Whoever does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. 
So Paul pursues a number of angles here and quotes a number of Old Testament passages, again, going to the law to prove his case against the Judaizers who relied on the law. In verse 10, he notes that observing the law puts one under a curse, quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26. Then in verse 11, he says, no one is justified by the law, at least before God, perhaps before man, but that doesn't count for much if we're talking about salvation. The law cannot justify, it only condemns. We can't do it all. Stott says it's not our work, but his. Later in verse 11, because the righteous live by faith quoting Habakkuk 2.4, the turning point of that great and, and underrated book. That verse is also quoted in Romans and in Hebrews 10.38. By definition and as a motivation, the righteous live by faith. Verse 12, law and faith can't be mixed. Law requires perfection, quoting Leviticus 18.5. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Again, Paul is arguing in both verses 11 and 12, sure, if you can follow the law, then you get to live. The problem is no one can do it. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse. Similar language to what he had said in Galatians 3.10. Also the same thing as Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 23. Of course, it's not because of Christ's own sin, but in bearing ours that we have a substitutionary death that Paul is referring to here, voluntarily becoming a curse for us on top of that. By using the word redemption here, it can be also translated ransomed. It's a picture of being redeemed or ransomed from slavery, and in this context, being set free from sin and law. Now, Romans 6, Paul argues that we're all slaves to something. And Exodus to Deuteronomy conveys this. They were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and then they would become slaves to God. But the angle here is a bit different, that we are freed from things. And so Galatians 5 will warn us about not giving that freedom up and how to use that freedom properly. So a slightly different angle that Paul uses here in Galatians compared to Romans. Verse 13 continues by saying that Christ was hung on a tree. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that he, we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In this time, it would have been how criminals were killed, but also as a matter of public display and as a sign of divine rejection. Again, this is really tough on the Jews and the Greeks, for that matter, in accepting Jesus. How do you have a Messiah who dies on a cross? That would be under a curse. Verse 14, Christ redeemed us to or for the blessing. This points to the promise to Abraham, to the Gentiles, through Christ, faith, grace, and the Holy Spirit. Now, after reading verse 13, you might think everyone receives this, but then verse 14 makes clear that no, it must be appropriated by faith. This results in the promise of the Spirit, which has been prophesied in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Christ spoke about it in great detail in John 14 and 16. And again, this is to be received by faith as well. Back to chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. All right, it's time to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we did Galatians 3, 6 through 14, which described the limits of the law. 
and the fruitfulness of faith and grace. And he used Abraham as an example. And you can picture the argument and people opposing it, saying, well, yes, Abraham was justified by faith, but Moses and the law came later. The Judaizers might argue that the giving of the law changed what was required for salvation. So Paul, anticipating that line of argument, proceeds with verses 15 through 18 of Galatians 3. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So a few small remarks before we get to the guts of this passage. First, it's interesting that he starts off this passage with brothers or brothers and sisters, depending on your translation. It's the first of many times that he'll do this, and it is backing off the harsh rhetoric of earlier in this chapter. Remember the foolish Galatians blast in chapter 3, verse 1. And then the passage ends with the word grace, another reminder that the gift was in response to Abraham's faith, not his actions. Romans 4.13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Back to verse 15, Paul observes that no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, and so, so much more so in the case of God's word. Verse 15 continues with, in this case, and then it moves into verse 16, the promise from God to Abraham and his seed, singular. Paul then identifies the seed as Christ. And as an aside, it's amazing what Paul gleans from the singular of a single word. One wonders if this is from his inspired desert time under the tutelage of Christ that he referred to back to in Galatians 1.19. Again, this indicates how inspired the scriptures are and that the Old Testament is so Christ-centered. So the key in this passage is the idea of promise, and it's repeated three times in verses 16 through 18 to Abraham, that God gave him a promise, verse 17 gave him a covenant, and in contrast to Moses, God gave the law, and as Paul observes in verse 17, the law does not set aside the covenant previously established or do away with the promise. In other words, the law cannot add demands to the promise, or it's not a promise. Now, for one thing, this points to the idea that the law must have a different purpose, and we've already talked about that in Galatians, and we'll pick up that theme again in the next passage, starting with verse 19. For now, though, let's consider the differences between promise and law. A promise is God saying, I will, and that's what we have throughout the New Testament and certainly what God did with Abraham. It was God unconditionally promising things to Abraham. In contrast, the law is thou shalt or thou shalt not. And this is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant is the law and trying to measure up to the law. The new covenant is the spirit comes to live inside of us to try to empower us to live out what we could not do in our own strength. 
It's also worth noting that Abraham's promise entailed not just Canaan for the Jews, but salvation and universal blessing and abundant life for all believers. It goes back to Genesis 12. He was to be blessed in order to bless all other people. John MacArthur says the promise came before the law and was resolved after it in Christ. God has always been saving men on the basis of faith and grace, right? The law does not supersede the promise, and the law was itself superseded by Christ and the Spirit. So the law cannot hold the position that the Judaizers are imagining. Again, MacArthur, salvation cannot be by faith and by works. The promise stood for grace and had only to be believed. The law stood for works and had to be obeyed. Only one, the promise, can save. Or as Timothy Keller puts it, a gift promise needs only to be believed to be received, but a law wage must be obeyed to be received. And that's the distinction that Paul is making here. John Stott says the promise sets forth a religion of God, God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. But the law, the old covenant, sets forth a religion of man, man's duty, man's works, man's responsibility. The promise standing for the grace of God had only to be believed, but the law standing for the works of men had to be obeyed. God's dealings with Abraham were in the category of promise, grace, and faith, but God's dealing with Moses were in the category of law, commandments, and works. The conclusion to which Paul is leading is that the Christian religion is the religion of Abraham, not Moses, of promise and not law, and that Christians are enjoying today the promise which God made to Abraham centuries ago. Or to put it more concisely, religion is man's attempt to reach out to God, and Christianity is God's attempt to reach out to man through grace and faith. The other angle that Paul is pursuing here comes from the word covenant in verses 15 and 17. And in the Septuagint, it's used to describe God's covenant, but in the Greek, it literally means last will and testament, a legal instrument operative upon death. And that leads to two possible readings. The covenant might end at death, that would be Abraham's, but Christ, the seed, is still alive. Or the will and testament begins at death and thus cannot be altered. The details are not fulfilled by the time of Moses and couldn't be set aside. Again, it's the time of Christ that fulfills what was in the will and the testament, what's ultimately called the new covenant. So in verses 17 and 18, when Paul says that the covenant promise hasn't been vacated or annulled by the giving of the law, then faith still has precedence over the law. Christ supersedes the law. Two analogies that might be useful here. We have the law of airplanes or aerodynamics, we might call it. It contrasts to the law of gravity. The law of gravity is still in operation, but if you get on an airplane that's properly functioning, the law of airplanes will trump the law of gravity. It doesn't get rid of it, but supersedes it. Or think about engagement and marriage, right? The engagement is superseded by the marriage. John Stott says, Paul explained how God gave Abraham a promise to bless all the families of the earth through his posterity, how he then gave Moses a law which, far from annulling the promise, actually made it more necessary and urgent, and how the promise was fulfilled in Christ so that everyone whom the law drives to Christ inherits the promise which God made to Abraham. So now Paul is going to go back to Abraham's covenant, which is based on faith, to argue that Christ fulfills it from what the law cannot do, earlier in chapter 3, to what it can do, verses 19 through 22, that it reveals sin until Christ came, and then verse 23 and following, to prepare people for his coming. So we start with verses 19 and 20. 
What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. So the opening question in verse 19 is, what was the purpose of the law? Look at the verb tense. Past tense was. It's a historical question in light of what Christ and the Spirit have accomplished, and it's anticipating their question from the previous passage. If it's by faith, and if Abraham's covenant and promise stands, then why the law at all? Why was a change made at Sinai? And there are a number of answers to this. The law provides objective standards. Think of Matthew 22, and Christ talks about the two greatest commandments. It convicts us. Romans 3.20 says, through the law, we became conscious of sin. At least the 10th commandment is convicting. We might fool ourselves into thinking that we have obeyed the first nine, but the 10th commandment of coveting doesn't let anybody off the hook. And of course, Christ, through his teaching, extended each of the 10 commandments. It awakens a sense of guilt. It proves to us we are sinners. Warren Wiersbe says the law shows the sinner his guilt, and grace shows him the forgiveness we can have in Christ. And so it drives us to trust in Christ's sufficiency. We might think of the law by analogy to a mirror, and that's what James 1, 22 through 25 does. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And so you have the provocative picture of the law that gives freedom and that we don't just look at the law, but we do it. And we don't do it because it justifies us. We do it because it's the right way to go. We follow a good and great God by following the laws that he's given us, not to earn his favor, but to live out a life of love and obedience. In this passage, Paul goes with the opening answer here, that it was added to Abraham's covenant and promise because of transgressions. Romans 4.15, Paul writes, where there is no law, there is no transgression. John Stott says, it is the law which turns sin into transgression. Transgression means to cross a boundary, and that's been laid down by the law. It condemns behaviors, it exposes our nature. The law was the old covenant, it accomplished so many things, but it was replaced by the promised in the past, but now delivered new covenant that comes with Jesus and the Spirit. Paul is also giving the Galatians two reasons for why the law is inferior. First, it's temporary. Verse 19, it's until the seed came, and that's Christ. And second, it was mediated. This is a little more sophisticated of an argument, but in verses 19 and 20, he says the law was put into effect by a mediator. Now, none was needed for Abraham's promise since it was one-sided and unconditional. That feeds back into what Paul was saying earlier. In contrast, the law was mediated through angels. Verse 20 continues along these lines, but God is one. In other words, the same God gave both the promise and the law, so it allows for an easy comparison, and he did it directly. There were no mediators signaling its importance. Stephen Neal says the promise came to Abraham firsthand from God, and the law comes to the people thirdhand. God, the angels, Moses, the people. So in a nutshell, verses 19 and 20 describe the law given by God through angels to Moses for the Israelites, third hand, versus the first hand promise covenant given by God directly to Abraham for all nations. 
The former was addressed to a smaller group of people for a shorter amount of time until the seed comes, verse 19, and the promise to Abraham is for all people forever under Abraham and then eventually under Christ. And again, this adds to Paul's point that the law does not, cannot replace Abraham's covenant and promise, which were indicative of what would be coming through Christ and the Spirit. Lord, we thank you for your new covenant. We thank you for the law and what it accomplished. But we thank you more than that for the relationship, the faith, the promise, the gift, the blessing that you gave to Abraham, which has been extended to us through Christ and the Spirit. Lord, we pray that we would not give in to the bondage of legalism, that we would not put ourselves under the law, but we would embrace the freedom that you've given us through Christ Jesus. We thank you for Paul's argument here, the divinely inspired words you've given him, Lord. We pray that it would make a difference in the way we see ourselves, how we minister and evangelize. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.